There's a painting in the Rijksmuseum. It shows the reformers sitting around a table together. Many of them. And a burning candle in the center suggests how the Reformation actually held up the light of the Word. And it uncovered the darkness that had obscured the gospel for centuries. So in the center, of course, you have the two primary reformers, Luther, and to his right, Calvin, and that multitude of other witnesses. God raised up Martin Luther in the 16th century to awaken the church to the true gospel. Do we need another awakening today to the true gospel? Okay, got somebody on my side this morning. (laughs) Every reformation in the church always begins with a work of reformation in the soul of one who is called to the deeper work of God in human history. Are you called to that? The deeper work of God in human history? Wow, let me say, I'm not a Martin Luther. Uh, I'm not an Apostle Paul. Um, I'm just little old me. Who do you think they were before God got a hold of them? (laughs) That's the difference God makes in an individual's life. So this week marks the 506th anniversary. Do we celebrate 506 years? (laughs) It's just another anniversary. 506th anniversary of Martin Luther's famous nailing of the 95 theses to the cathedral door at Wittenberg, or Wittenberg, if we're going to say it in German, right? It was an event that shook the foundations of Christendom in the 16th century. The medieval period was actually getting the final nails put in its coffin right there. Because Martin Luther was willing to go back over the biblical text and be surprised by deeper meaning. You and I should have that experience regularly if we are pouring over God's word, shouldn't we? God's constantly wanting to surprise us here over things that we missed the first time around or the tenth or the hundredth. There's more to be found. It's a question of whether we will take the time to pour over his word. As Luther restudied God's word to the Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans especially, he was hungry for God to show him larger truth than what he had previously understood. And so let God expand his horizons Beyond human tradition, because that's where the church was stuck, in medieval traditions, some of which we haven't let go of to this day. Luther was not branching off into heresy, straying into false doctrine. He was listening to the Spirit. Remember what the Spirit said in Revelation several, seven times, as a matter of fact. There's seven churches 
And the Spirit said this seven times. Whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying through his word? Mm. Luther's discoveries launched a deep renewal of the faith and the mission of the church. That was back in the 16th century. This is five centuries later, folks. We need it to happen again. That's the spirit of the Reformation that's worth celebrating and that's worth reviving today. But it needs your help. Are you willing? Or do you just want to sit there quietly and rest while the pastor spouts off all that he's thinking about? (laughs) I would rather you engage with me and your heart say, "Mm, yes, that's my call too. All right. So I'd like to review a little bit of Martin Luther's history because I think there is inspiration in it. God was at work in that man's life. His conversion to Jesus as Lord took place in stages. Does that ever happen to us? Did your conversion take place in stages or was it just wham? This is it. (laughs) Somebody's with me. (laughs) Thank you. I think mine took place sort of in stages too because, you know, at first you kind of get it, but then you realize, hey, I didn't get it. (laughs) I got to get with this a little bit. And then you realize later, hmm, I really wasn't there yet. (laughs) I needed more. You know what? I think that's a process that's supposed to last our whole life. There's always more of God's truth to impact who we are and how we are. So let's look at those stages in Luther's life. His first conversion was to become a monk. (laughs) That meant more religion, more of this religion. More religion. Did that ever do the world any good? And it was only later that he really became a true believer in the gospel. He was born in Eisleben, Germany, November 10, 1483, coming up on his birthday. Came from a peasant family. His mother was a pious Catholic who especially instilled the fear of God into her strong-willed Son, I guess God made him that way because God knew what he was going to have to face in his life. As a university student, one day returning, from, returning to school after a visit home, this was 1505, if it helps to have the year in mind, he was terrified by an awful thunderstorm and thrown to the ground by an enormous bolt of lightning. So he cried out in his desperation and fear. Saint Anne, help me. I'll become a monk. He was vowing to Saint Anne if she would save him from this terrible storm, he would give his life to be a monk. He would give up everything else to become a monk. Well, he called on Saint Anne because she was the patron saint of minors. That was his father's occupation. He was a minor. And he took this vow very seriously. 
mm, it meant something to him. So it wasn't long after that that he was knocking on the doors of the observant Augustinian monks in Erfurt wanting to join their ranks. He became a monk. He'd always been a deeply religious person. From his youth, he had had this question in his heart regularly, will I ever be holy enough? Will I ever do enough to, to receive the grace of God? He was just always anxious about this question because he sat under the penitential preaching of his day, which actually was a continual bombardment about hell and damnation. That's what they preached. That's what they were drilling into people, and it placed a heavy burden of guilt on the hearer because of the curse of the law. And they never lifted this burden with the gospel of grace. No, no. They might start uh, acting up, being permissive, thinking they can get away with anything and always come back to God's grace. So, no, you just don't preach it. Just stay with the fear and trembling. Got it? Medieval teaching of the church had insisted that the wrath of God can only be propitiated by good works and holy living. So Luther's mental picture of God was that of an angry judge, like what he saw every Sunday as a boy in the stained glass windows of the church, Christ painted as in John's vision in Revelation with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Would scare any child, wouldn't it? So that means Martin Luther understood nothing of the grace and mercy of God at this point in his life. The grace and mercy that were expressed in the cross itself. In 1510, under God's sovereignty, Luther was transferred to a different monastery in the town of Wittenberg. There he had a spiritual breakthrough. You are probably familiar with the common practice back then, the confessional. You went and you confessed all your sins to a confessor, and the confessor would then grant you absolution, forgiveness. Maybe assigning you some penitence to, to do in the meanwhile, yeah. So Luther was adamant in this practice, confessed daily. Sometimes for hours at a time. By his own testimony, he says, I was a good monk. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, <laughs> I was that monk. He goes on to say, all my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out if I had kept on any longer. I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. Even his confessor grew weary of listening to him, his laborious lists of sins, and finally told him, enough, don't come back until you've committed a sin that's worth confessing. <laughs> I'm not telling you that, so uh, <laughs> no, that is not. <laughs> Later, the, the, the confessor had a better advice for him. He said, since you've earned your doctorate in Bible, this was 1512 now, you should begin teaching and preaching. And so he was going to assign him 
to a professorate. Now, that sounds kind of strange, wasn't it? This guy who's got this obsessive problem with his sins and can't get it figured out. Oh, we're going to put you to teach. Ooh. What's he going to teach? Well, it was God's remedy in his life. So Luther began to follow the Renaissance instinct of getting back to the sources, the Hebrew and the Greek. And these studies led him to believe that the church had lost the vision of several central truths of Scripture. This was very concerning to him. He was assigned to the chair of theology at the University of Wittenberg, and he began to lecture his students in the Psalms. This was 1513. You should know about Luther also that throughout his life, he experienced recurring bouts of anxiety and depression. Does that describe anybody here? Mm, this also obviously contributed to his, the struggle that he had with his faith. So whenever he felt overcome by deep tribulation, confusion of soul, he now would find his comfort in Scripture. Do we do that? Is that our go-to in our moments of struggle, sorrow, anguish. It should be. Luther was dis discovering the truth, hearing the Holy Spirit who led him to the word. Firm foundation we have sung. That's it. He was discovering it. Later he was going to be lecturing in Romans 1515 to 1516. And what dawned on him through these studies of Romans was that salvation was a gift. Oh, they didn't know that. No, it was a discovery. A gift exclusively from the grace of God through Christ received only by faith. Well, we see right there that the famous Reformation slogans were beginning to take shape in his mind. The sola gratia, sola fide, sola scriptura. Only by grace, only through faith, only scripture not all the other things that have been added in. And sometime later, the other solas would be added. The solus Christus, soli deo gloria, so that there are actually five of them that complete the Protestant contribution to the flow of historical Christianity. What we can say about this is that this was the time of Luther's true conversion to Jesus as Lord, as he came to know the God of the Scripture, the God of faith, especially as he poured over Romans. And within Romans, he didn't get very far before this was boiling over. In fact, chapter 1, that's where it started. Let's read it together just to remember this portion. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Wow. It's a huge text. One Bible commentator, Lane Keister, said this, wrote this about it. He said, here is the whole of Romans in a nutshell. 
Notice how many themes of Romans are present right here. Gospel, power of God, salvation, faith, Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, righteousness of God, revelation, righteousness by faith, eternal life. That is a lot of themes crammed into these two verses that later Paul is going to develop through the letter. No wonder it's such a dense, overflowing letter. You know, Paul was writing this letter from Corinth. He was not in prison when he wrote Rome. He was toward the end of his second missionary journey. It had been a very successful journey, successful understood in spiritual terms, because God had just opened the way, helped to establish multiple churches all over that area. And so now Paul was dreaming of where to next, Lord. And Rome was just naturally what he had in mind. Oh, I want to take the gospel to the capital of this empire. I want God's word to prevail there. We might apply that to our situation. We're in the capital of Spain. God has brought us here. Is it just so we can go about our little personal lives and not ever think about the larger context? I don't think so. I hope you're with me here. I think God has put us Here in the capital of this great country that so needs a witness to the gospel. Are you with me? Amen. Let's let's be together on this. He has us here for a purpose. So we're just going to focus on these these, these two verses, verses 16 and 17 this morning. That's all we have time for. Mm, But there's enough here to occupy us, okay? So... Verse 16 there, first thing he says in this verse is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Maybe that brings to mind the question, why would anyone have reason to be ashamed of the gospel? Well, we might come up with a few. (laughs) A crucified Messiah. Not easy to convince anyone that a crucified Messiah could be a savior. It, uh, it, it, it challenges the mind, doesn't it? It's against, it defies human logic, shall we say. Mm, such a shameful end for what had been such an amazing ministry, some might say. What did Jesus do with that shame? This is a parenthesis, by the way. What did Jesus do with the shamefulness of it? Hebrews 12 says, despising the shame. Other translations put it, disregarding the shame. The Greek word actually says something more like that. Accepting the shame as if it were nothing. Jesus was not shamed by it because he had nothing to be ashamed of. Do we get it? Jesus had nothing to be ashamed of. So that shameful situation by anybody's standards, it didn't bother him. He had other things to occupy his attention, didn't he? The cross is the essence of our faith. And yet, really, it's all about injustice, cruelty, pain, and death. And we certainly don't want to exalt those things, do we? As if they were worthy values, Though the story actually revolves about 
those ugly realities. Another reason somebody might come up with, who wants to be told how sinful they are? Do you like that? (laughs) Maybe if you're a masochist. (laughs) We don't particularly like it, and yet the cross certainly underscores that truth, doesn't it? Or did we miss it? Hope not. And then there's the, the resurrection. Such an unbelievable idea to most generations of humanity. So maybe someone might be a little embarrassed to push that idea too hard. It's just easier to reduce Jesus to a great teacher, really kind and loving human. I mean, everybody can agree with that, can't they? And we don't have to step on anybody's toes and and we're all good but lost, totally lost. So, Paul says, there are lots of good reasons not to be ashamed of the gospel. And I hope this is where you will enter in with me and engage here. Reasons not to be ashamed, to be Joyful, proud of this wonderful gospel that God has given us. First thing Paul says is, it's the power of God for salvation. Can't beat that. Salvation, that means it's the the opposite of loss and defeat and destruction, right? Salvation. It's rescue. It's redemption. The gospel is his power for salvation. That. Remember how Isaiah 55 talks about the Word of God being sent forth to accomplish His purposes. And just like the rain, the precipitation that falls on the earth, it always produces the good result. God's Word just as surely accomplishes His purpose. Every time. Always. So how much more will His Word accomplish its purpose when it's enfleshed? God incarnate in our midst for the purpose of eliminating the barrier between us and God. It's the power for destroying every obstacle to our reconciliation. Doing away with every enemy that kept us under oppression. Yeah. The Word of God is powerful. How much more so when it became flesh to accomplish God's purpose. So maybe the question is, how do we experience that power? Well, another reason not to be ashamed of the gospel here. It's for all who believe. It's not if you can work hard enough, if you can do enough things, etc., etc. It's not about a competition. It is for all who believe. Faith. Faith is the instrument. It's the connecting, the, the coupling point. Accepting that what Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection was on our behalf. It was for us. It was for you. You have to personalize this. Yeah, it, it was for me. That's when you're going to experience the power of it through that kind of faith. 
Think about it this way. Jesus himself lived by faith. It's not like, you know, he was some oddity, some tertium quid, not really human. No, he was human like we are. He had to exercise faith in his life. That's what he was doing. That's why he's called the author and finisher of the faith. He was the pioneer, some translations say. And he was always faithful to his father, faithful to his calling, faithful to those he had come to save. That's you and me. He was faithful to us as his neighbors who needed his love, his grace. Yeah. So, salvation was first for the believing Jew and then for the believing Greek or Gentile, the rest of the nations, right? Uh, okay, I need to understand this. What's the reason for that order? Why do some go first and others go second? That's an easy one. You know the answer. The Jewish people were the original launching pad for God's good news. God needed a place to put his foot into the human stream, didn't he? He had to prepare that. That's what he did with the Jewish people, the people of Israel. So, actually, the good news that he brought as he prepared them was always intended for the whole world. The Jews were supposed to be light for the nations, weren't they? Yep. So even in the Old Testament, this was already the plan, even if they didn't always fulfill it fully. So when the new covenant comes, it's a renewed opportunity for the Jews to fulfill their calling, to be the agents and the catalysts and the proclaimers, the first ones of this good news to the rest of the world. You see, it's not a matter of preference. It's a matter of God's sequential order, chronological order. There's another reason we want to include here. It's in verse 17. This was the verse that really plagued Martin Luther until he finally understood it. Particularly the phrase, the righteousness of God that was revealed in the gospel. Yeah, that's a good reason not to be ashamed of the gospel because it's right there. You have to look at it more than once to see it. The righteousness of God is being revealed in this gospel. Well, Luther didn't get it at first either. Being a monk, he wanted to gain salvation by what he did. You remember, he not only held to the rules rigidly, he confessed practically everything in his life as sin, and it still wasn't enough for him. He was still plagued by these questions like, how can I stand before the holiness of my judge with works that are polluted at their very source? In other words, he realized that he himself was the source of pollution, so how could he ever do anything good? What he tried to do was already polluted before he did it. When he looked at this phrase, the righteousness of God, he understood it to mean the righteousness of a perfect judge who condemns all sinners to everlasting torment. It's what they deserve. This is a legalistic approach to righteousness. And this was what Luther inherited from his medieval background. The light did not come on for Luther 
until he finally realized that here in Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God doesn't mean the kind that focuses on your faults and nitpicks and condemns. Rather, God's righteousness manifested in Christ as right relatedness that's offered to us as a free gift when we call on Him, when we exercise faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You could never do enough. No, it's a gift. He knows us. He offers this gift to us. And just as He's offered it to us, we then in turn have the privilege of offering it to others around us. Are we doing that? Is the gift flowing through us? Or are we a dam holding it back, saying no, no? Instead of his righteousness being our condemnation, the righteousness of God is our salvation. Jesus was always in right relationship with his Father. Always faithful to him. So when we, through faith, are in Christ, we also share in that right relate, relatedness. And we learn faithfulness as we exercise faith in him. It just makes your faith grow as you exercise your faith in him. You see, the apostle Paul was quoting there, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. That's actually the order of the words in the text from Habakkuk. So the, by faith, you don't know if it goes with righteousness or shall live or both. But it's righteousness that comes from faith. And it's for faith, as the text says. For faith to live in him. So the righteousness, uh, righteousness of the law never could save anybody. In fact, in the Psalms and the Prophets, there are so many examples of parallelisms between righteousness and salvation. And we really should have caught this before. Psalm 98.2, the Lord has made his salvation known, revealed his righteousness to the nations. This is what we call a Hebrew parallelism. It's the way that the Hebrews expressed their poetic sentiments, saying the same thing, Twice, just using different terminology. And what's in parallel here is salvation and righteousness. When God discloses his salvation, he's revealing his righteousness. Or check it out in the prophet of Isaiah. My salvation is close at hand. My righteousness will soon be revealed. Same thing. Or in Isaiah 45, when he says, There's no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. Those two, man de la mano. They go together. Uña y carne. So, it's the right relatedness that we receive by faith in Jesus that saves us. That's it. What Luther called an alien righteousness. Not like it's from outer space. Just like it's from somewhere else. It's not of me. We get it? So righteousness, he meant that it's, it's completely from outside ourselves. It's not a righteousness to which we contribute anything. It's totally a gift. It's the righteousness that Jesus enfleshed throughout his life 
and even in his death. It's the relational righteousness of truly loving God with all his being, even under the worst circumstances, and truly loving his neighbor, every one of them as himself. Do you see? He didn't speak one thing and act another way. The commandments, the great commandments that he told us about, he fulfilled them. He's the only one who ever did. That in itself should tell us, he's the Savior. I want to go, I want to follow him. Even to the point, he did this, of laying down his life in the face of our rebellion. Instead of wiping us out, as we deserved, And this is the sense of how his sacrifice was actually in our place. He did this instead of annihilating us all. This was God's own self-sacrifice on our behalf. You see, he was the judge. He is the judge who will call our sin to account. He was the judge on that cross who pronounced his verdict because God had authorized him as the judge on earth who had the power to forgive sin. And he did so even as he received the worst of it in his face. He forgave it. He was acting as our advocate declaring us forgiven if we will but turn to him in faith. Call on him. Trust in him. You see, when Luther came to understand this, he says it was as if the very gates of heaven had opened up to him. So he went back and reread the whole Bible with this in mind. And he says everything was different this time. It was all, it was a different story, a different book. Changed everything for him. The transformation of his understanding is what sparked the Reformation. Well, how about in your soul? Understanding this deeply applying it can spark a reformation, a revival, a transformation in you, in your soul, in your circumstances, in your problems and needs. Do we get it? Oh, don't sleep through this. (laughs) This is what we all need. Luther got it. Every aspect of his life was affected by it. Every aspect of my life has been affected by it. It changes everything. How we react to God and his work in our lives. How we treat one another. How we think. What we say. What we do. Changes your prayer life. Your relationships. Your behavior. There's nothing more practical than this doctrine of being made right with God by faith alone. Okay, it was a little slow there, but (laughs) you're coming through. So if this is the case, how can people remain unchanged when they come to believe this gospel? It is uh, logically impossible. It's a contradiction. How can people remain enslaved to sin if they have died to sin? Romans 6. How can you not offer your body as a living sacrifice to God when you have seen his mercies so incarnated? Romans 12. 
How can you fail to recognize that your freedom of conscience doesn't give you liberty to trample the conscience of someone else? Romans 14. See, he's just going to keep developing this all through the letter. I want to finish up with a, a quote from N.T. Wright. That's Nicholas Thomas Wright. They call him Tom. He's a very well-known um, Anglican biblical expositor, theologian, who's written a lot. has a whole book on the righteousness of God, but I'm not even going to quote from that one this morning. I, I want to quote from his book entitled, The Day the Revolution Began, because I think it has some very timely advice an exhortation for us. He says, unless someone in the church, in every Christian gathering, in every generation, is working toward a deeper understanding of fundamental Christian truth, it is dangerously easy for individuals and communities to drift away from the life-giving meaning of the gospel. This man has studied the history of the church closely. He studied scripture closely. He's speaking wisdom out of his deep perception. He says we constantly need to move beyond popular summaries and slogans. The powerful love of God is so counterintuitive, contrary to common sense, that we tend to reduce it in our imagination and memory. And we develop mechanisms to resist its definitive and transformative challenge. Or even worse, we distort and twist it until we find ourselves saying and doing the opposite of what we should. That's what had happened to the Pharisees. Do we think we are not susceptible to that kind of danger? We're all made of the same flesh, folks. We are susceptible. To me, this is the reminder we need as we celebrate this anniversary of the Reformation. Mediocrity in Christian faith, commitment, and practice is absolutely the work of the devil. Are you a mediocre Christian? Do you prefer your comfort over sacrifice for the sake of Christ? Do you prefer your own agenda? over God's clearly stated will and purpose. Or maybe the opposite is your case. Maybe it's Christian hyperactivism that's your problem. Always trying to do more and do more and do more. and You're trying to win your salvation by what you do. Busy, busy, busy. How do we overcome these attitudes when they have basically become our life habit? I think it begins by hungering for true nourishment. Oh, I want what will really nourish my soul, my heart, my mind. Bring that change, that transformation. To know the meaning of the word as Luther hungered for it. And to be saturated with Christ's perspective, the mind of Christ, his righteousness, right relatedness, so that he could endure the worst and continue to remain rightly related. Wow, he is a savior. He is worthy of my deepest worship.
Because you see, you and I are called to identify with that cross, aren't we? What Paul did in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is a deep level of identification, folks. We're called to visualize our Savior in his self-sacrifice. Writer of the Hebrews says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Visualizing him and that self-sacrifice on our behalf. We're called to enter into his suffering. That's Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made like him in his death. You see, we have to use our sanctified imagination to put ourselves in Jesus' lacerated skin and broken body so that we realize we humans were the ones doing that to him. It wasn't God doing this to him. It was us. So the cross was all about our rejection of God's authority over us and his humble response of grace toward our faithlessness. Wow. Look deeply into that dark well. And when we realize that Jesus responded to all that injustice from us, not out of fear or vengefulness, not with resentment or anger, but out of faithfulness to God's heart of love, with mercy with forgiveness, every moment of those long hours of torture and agony. And right there, right there, we come to understand the righteousness that saves. Because of the faith that he was practicing to the very end, the faithfulness he enfleshed for our sakes and makes available to us even as we call on him. Will you do that with me right now? Just call on him. This faithful God who's here just waiting for you to speak to him, to call his name. Would you do that right now in silence? Call on the one who is faithful, who shares his faithfulness. By teaching us faith in him. Shares his righteousness. Offering to clothe us in it. Shares his forgiveness, his mercy. Pours them out on us. As we simply turn to him in confession. Lord Jesus, we call on your name. We can never finish assimilating how worthy you are of our worship, how worthy of our loyalty, how worthy of the service of our lives that we as individuals and as a collection, as a church, might be instruments of your righteousness that saves in this city, 
in these many neighborhoods where we live in this witness that you've called us to give. Holy Savior, may you celebrate the Reformation in us by drawing us close to your heart, transforming us into your image. We plead for it in the name of Jesus.